Listener supported. WNYC Studios. For both of you, a lot has changed since the last time I talked to you. A lot. Yes. What is your feeling? Like, if there's a word, like, what's your feeling today? Um, progress. Adjustment. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Harry, I'm not going to sleep with him or anything. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. There's a problem. She doesn't have a bank account. And need to talk about more. You can't kneel down in the middle of a highway and live to talk about it, son. I'm Anna Sale. Lawrence Bartley walked out of Sing Sing prison last May, a free man for the first time in nearly three decades. After 27 years. He reunited with his wife, Renine, together on the outside for their first time as a married couple. I first interviewed Lawrence at Sing Sing prison in New York in 2014. He was arrested when he was 17, after he was involved in a shootout in a movie theater. An innocent bystander, a 15-year-old boy, was killed. Lawrence was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 27 years to life. The first time Lawrence went before the parole board a year ago, he was denied. Then he appealed that decision and was released in May. It has been a long time. Yes. It's been what almost is it, four, four years. Yeah. Lawrence is 45 now. He and Renine came into the studios at WNYC to talk to me again. And he told me that after imagining his release day for so many years, the way it actually happened wasn't what he expected. I was told 36 hours before the release time. And a lot of the guys were, like, taken by surprise that I was leaving so quickly. So everybody was coming to, like, the cell that they had me living in. And it was a, a lot of people just waving, making a line to say goodbye. So After so many years of waiting, it was a rush. Yes, it was a rush, a welcome rush. And was was that day for you what you imagined, Renine? No. Um... I was expecting to pick my husband up alone, and then it turned into, like, 10 of us going to pick him up. Um, It's so overwhelming that you don't really get to digest everything, but um, when he walked through that—well, when he walked out of the van, because it wasn't through a gate with me, it just—that normalcy feeling came over me. And I've been like that ever since. Like, this is real life now. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. When Lawrence left prison, he had about $1,300 to his name. Some of it gifts from family and friends and savings from his job in prison, where he earned $15 every two weeks from doing office work. The first thing Lawrence did the day he was released was try to open a bank account, but couldn't. Because they said I needed a driver's license or permit. You had no ID. I had the prison ID. I had my social security card. I had my birth certificate, my marriage license, and everything that they said that wasn't enough. Have you ever had a bank account before? Never. And it was that day. It was important to you. You wanted that day to, like, begin a yeah. life on the outside with a bank account. That's it. I want that day. I was like, I'm a whole plan. That's part of my freedom. 
as a part of my own independence. It was something that I can, you know, I can see my money come from my job electronically into my bank account, and I can look at it on my phone and look at the app and see that the money is there. So it makes me feel connected, safe. When did you get your phone? Oh, when, as soon as I got out, the first day, Ronnie yes. handed me a phone. Yes. Had you seen a smartphone before? Only on TV. And how long did that take to become comfortable with that? I don't know. I guess Ronnie probably best to answer <sighs> that question. He's, it took him about, a, um, I guess, like three weeks probably. It was just like he was just so dis- Distracted by the phone in the beginning. Like, if we're walking, it, like, takes him, like, 10 minutes to maybe even send a text or something. Right. And yeah, because I felt less than that, that people in the outside world were texting so freely, and it was so easy for them. But for me, it took me, like, a long time to do a simple sentence because my thumbs were hitting two and three buttons at the mm-hmm. same time. But I had this, always had this feeling, like, maybe... People are watching me. Do they know? Oh, he just came out of prison. Oh, look at that guy. But, so I try to do things that to assimilate well so people won't notice. Lawrence and Renine have known each other since they were growing up in Queens. They even dated in junior high. After he was arrested, Renine would visit Lawrence in prison. And in 2006, they got married. Renine has worked for years in New York City public schools as an administrator. And now that Lawrence is out, he's working two jobs, both at criminal justice nonprofits. I sent him to work with lunch. I thought that was just so cute. I don't even make lunch for myself when I'm working. Man, this, and it's great. I'm so used to it. And without it, I feel like a fish out of water. I make them breakfast in the morning, three different breakfasts usually. But it's something that I enjoy doing. The three breakfasts are for Lawrence and their two young boys, little Lawrence, who's 10, and Lawson, who's five. They were born while Lawrence was in prison. Sing Sing gives inmates time alone with their families if they have good behavior. So Renine and then Renine and the kids had regular overnight visits. They know their father. So, you know, it was a slight adjustment but like a welcome adjustment, I guess, so to speak. It's, it's a little different because when they would come see me every week on a visit, I always wanted to be, this is my happy moment for the week. Let's just not deal with any issues. Let's just have fun today, hug, everything is nice. But at home, I have to be like, Lawson, don't hang on the light fixture. Don't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> don't do things like that. So I have to be a, a disciplinarian of sorts. And sometimes I don't seem as fun anymore. So I have a thing. They Sometimes they say crude jokes. I tell them, all right, you got to do push-ups. You got to do 10 push-ups. And then they, they play around, all right, it's 20. So they might do 20 push-ups. And I don't knees. like that. It's, it's so silly because they think it's a joke. It's not serious enough for me. But whatever. I just stay out of it. A lot of times they come out of the house and they leave the door open. And, and you want to leave the door open. In the summertime, mosquitoes get in and all that. So I started telling them to close the door 10 times. I close it and then walk away, open it, close it, walk away. Just keep doing it, keep doing it until they're tired of it. So they say, I'm going to leave, I'm going to close that door because they going to make me do it like 10 times. So I <laughs> hope oh, that works. So it sounds like the household 
It's different than when it was you and the boys, Renine. It's different. I don't yell as much because Lawrence is there. I just let go. Well, you know, it's like, okay, he's here. You can you can deal with it. They got to get out of our bed, though. Like, we yeah, go to sleep they... and it'd be like four in the morning. Someone's coming in between us and they're like, oh. Every night. Come and then my neck hurting. I got to adjust. I got four people in one bed. We can't fit. <laughs> you stay in your room. The boys want to be close to you. All the time. All Both the time. of us. All the time. They're living in Queens, in a house they share with Lawrence's father. I interviewed Renine there last summer, before Lawrence's first parole hearing, the one where he was denied. I knew there could be a no, but I wasn't really expecting it to be a no. And once I got the decision that he was denied parole, it kind of, something broke inside, so to speak. Like, the strength in me broke because he was supposed to be, like, my lifesaver. Like, he was supposed to just make it all better. And I was depressed. And people don't like, I'm going to get a little emotional. I'm sorry. Okay. People don't really like to talk about it. But the combination of him not coming home and losing that hope or losing that confidence that I had or trust in the justice system or the, the parole board. I don't want to say I lost it, but I would like to speak my truth and say that I was depressed. And, you know, there were bad, horrible days, horrible, like, days where I couldn't even get out of the bed, days that I couldn't get the kids dressed in the morning. And I'm used to doing things on my own and not having to depend on people and seeming like I was a failure. And at the time where I felt like, Lawrence needed me most, it was like, how could you do that? Like, how could you not have it all together? And I don't want to make it seem like it was all about Lawrence um, and me being a person that depends on a man or someone else's freedom is dependent on how I'm living my life. Um, but to, to a certain extent, that's what it is. That's what it was. And I guess I felt ashamed about that or felt less than because I kind of felt that way a little bit. Lawrence, when did you learn the extent of what a hard time Renine was having? Uh, I could sense that she was going through some things. And then when she told me, I was like, you know, Nothing else is more important than her sanity. But I felt helpless because I wasn't there. So I would kind of sit down in my cell in the dark and try to think of the way I say, somewhere in there, somewhere in this world to fix it. There's somewhere in your head, Lawrence, you just have to figure it out. So I would just try and try and try. But luckily, she broke through and found a place that would have the conversations with her that she needed. And at the same time, she would still be there for our children. I just want to go back to something you said. Um, you talked about the 
the shame of feeling um, to, that you needed this man to, to be out of prison to help you and that that in some ways made you feel like you weren't strong because you yeah. dis- like what part when you think about how much you were holding together on the outside for so many years why did you feel like you couldn't feel heartbroken i i don't know i just i guess i felt in a way that i'm not being true to who i claim to be i guess i just felt like I don't know. I shouldn't feel like I'm going to be broken if he's not around. I don't know. I guess it's like it sounds kind of cruel, I guess, when you say it out loud. But Lawrence's journey to freedom or Lawrence's journey to success is Lawrence's journey to success. It it that belongs to him and my path of whatever I'm doing belongs to me. So that kind of kept me going through the years, knowing that we can love each other, but we can still have our own two separate entities of being. So I guess breaking down was, it was like, it was contradictory of what my life statement was for myself. Renine eventually got help at a mental health clinic in Queens after having to search for weeks for somewhere with an available appointment. She still goes to therapy once a week. Coming up, how Lawrence is trying to make up for lost time now that he's free. I don't have any pension. I don't have a 401k. I was incarcerated all this time. The bill, no social security, nothing like that. So I have to save for all those things in the future. And I have to save to make the next generation of Bartleys live better than this generation of Bartleys. Lawrence is out of prison, but still very much involved in the correction system. Both of the nonprofits where he works focus on criminal justice. And Lawrence is also among the plaintiffs in a federal lawsuit against the New York State Parole Board. The case centers on inmates who were arrested as juveniles and given indeterminate life sentences, like Lawrence's 27 years to life. The lawsuit wants the parole board to change its standards, so juvenile offenders are evaluated more on their age at the time of their crimes and their rehabilitation in prison. And as we've been following Lawrence and Renine's story for the past few years, we heard from a lot of listeners, including one named Ken. He lives in Texas, and he reached out after he heard Lawrence describe the Internet. Lawrence told me in prison that he'd seen pictures of it, but never used it. Ken is a librarian, and he tweeted at us with an offer to be Lawrence's personal librarian. We passed Ken's contact info on to Renine, and during Lawrence's last year in prison, Lawrence told me they talked on the phone every Sunday afternoon at 4. He's 50, you know, he's a white guy, I'm 45, I'm a black guy from the inner city. He's from definitely not the city, the opposite of being in the city. So it's, it's kind of weird that we connected so well, but we connected over our love for our children. So that's what we have in common. That's what he, why he reached out to me, because he sensed that I loved my boys and made him think about his boys. 
He and Ken have never met in person, and Lawrence can't leave New York City without permission from his parole officer. But Lawrence hopes to get down to Texas someday. He likes to go canoeing sometimes. He goes off the grid for a couple of days. So him and I promise each other that we're going to do that together. We're just going to go off the grid for like two or three days and, and just hang out. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Lawrence lives in Queens, not too far from where he grew up. Some landmarks still feel familiar, even though he was in high school when he last saw them. And he's been running into people he knew as a teenager. The other day, uh, my sister had a barbecue. And I went to the barbecue and I saw about eight individuals that were in my kindergarten class. It was good to see that, you know, some of the guys grew up and, and, and did okay for themselves. And a lot of people I didn't recognize because they have gotten much older. And, uh, and I didn't want to say, oh, um, I don't know who you are. So I would act like I knew them. But then as the conversation go on, I'm, I'm, I'm processing, processing, and the eyes stay the same. Well, oh, you are such and such. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So it's like, wow. So I had a lot, I get a lot of those moments. But my high school is having a reunion, too, I think, next week. Are you going to go? Yes, I'm thinking about going. It'll be what reunion for you? Oh, man, I was supposed to graduate class in 1991. So that have been like, that's what, 26 years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, well, 26, 27 years ago. Since you've gotten out... Does time feel different to you, the passage of time? It's too quick. Because on the inside, sometimes it didn't go fast enough. I wanted the board dates to get here. I wanted time to get out to get here. I wanted visit days to get here. And now I want things to slow down a little bit. I want to spend time with my family, but sometimes I can't squeeze all that in. Does it feel like Lawrence is in a rush, Renine? It it just feels like he always has something to do. Um, and he tries to fit everything in and is just not practical. It's like he's I guess he's taking everything in. That's really what it is. Just that he just fits too many things in in a day. Mm-hmm. But he likes it that way. That's how I live my yeah. life on the inside. I just don't feel myself if I'm not doing multiple things. Because then I don't want to feel like I missed out on an opportunity or I didn't do enough in order to get us where we need to be. I was 17 years old when I went in, and now I'm out trying to do things that I probably would have been doing then, like trying to start my career, trying to figure out where I am and like where I excel at, trying to build my credit, trying to save money, trying to get my first car, you know, trying to do all that while at the same time being a dad of young children, being a husband to a wife, you know, being a son to my father or a son to my mother or brother to my sister because everyone in my family has their own wants of me. And I kind of feel like, through the years that I robbed them of that. So I feel like I have to be there for them. If I can do that, <laughs> she's like, oh, I was too much You're effort. You're shaking in your it. head. I'm not going to, I'm not, uh, no comment on that one. 
I feel like if I can make everyone's life better, then I did my job. But it's not practical. So I guess that's another where we have our little issues. Um, I have a little resentment with that. I'm not going to lie. He knows that. He calls me the irrational person, which I hate when he says that because I don't think I'm being irrational at all. I think I'm making a lot of sense. And, you know, I have a lot of resentment against people who love him so much but never really came to see him. But just the fact that he feels as if he has to kind of fulfill somebody that wasn't thinking about him when he was in his at his lowest moment. So, you know, use that energy and put it into us on this side. I mean, I could be wrong for it, but... Well, I don't want it to be like I have to choose between putting love into my home household and putting love into my extended family. That's that's not cool to be in that in that position, you know. I mean, that's fine, but I just don't like the hypocrisy of in all of the the hoopla, you know, and I don't think like what he doesn't understand like when he's on the inside they didn't validate me as a wife, as a real wife. Oh, he married her while he was in jail. Uh, you know, this, this is what they're thinking. And that hurt me because I was real. I was a real person. I was a real wife to Lawrence. I, it's, we are married. We're going to stay married. And I wasn't just someone that he wanted to marry because he wanted to have conjugal visits or something like that. I was someone that he loved as a kid and then again as an adult. So you're here in support of him, but where were you when I was the wife? Where were you in support of me for being the wife? That's how I feel about the situation. I guess that's your opinion. (laughs) It definitely is. After Lawrence found out he was being paroled, he published an essay from prison about his crime and about Tremaine Hall, the 15-year-old he was convicted of killing. He wrote, After more than 27 years and dozens of understandably unanswered apology letters, I still sit in my cell thinking about Tremaine in that one fatal shot, the dreadful, inexcusable, and irreversible action of my 17-year-old self. Lawrence and Tremaine had both gone to a movie, The Godfather, Part 3, on Christmas night in 1990. Lawrence was there with a group of guys who started fighting with another group in the dark theater. They pulled out guns, and Tremaine was killed in the crossfire. Lawrence was charged with his murder. I talked with Chad Hall, Tremaine's older brother, before Lawrence's first parole hearing. I don't hate him. I just do know that because my brother can't come back and my brother doesn't have the ability to to be free, neither should he. Well, I heard it. Ranine played it for me over the phone. And when I heard it, you know, I kind of always wanted to know what Tremaine Hall's family thought of me. I obviously knew what they thought of the situation, but I wanted to know what they thought of me. And it was kind of... I was understandable that he felt that way, that he wouldn't forgive me. You know, I understood that sentiment. And at the, but there was a part of me that would say, "Well, wow, you don't even like you don't even know me." It's like, 
I take full responsibility for my action. I pull the trigger in that movie theater. But to be honest, I don't know if I actually killed Tremaine Hall. And I don't mean that to say, like, oh, he's out, he's trying to get all over this. I fired a one shot inside of a dark movie theater where 25 other shots were firing. But the explanation I got is that, well, your bullet was close enough to proximity to him, so it had to be you. We, we've talked about that night before and when you fired that shot. And when you were still in prison, you didn't, you didn't bring up the possibility that the bullet you shot might not have killed him, that you may have been convicted of a crime that you did not, in fact, commit. Right. Do you believe that you killed him? I really don't know. I really, literally don't know. It was dark, and I literally fired a shot after I didn't see anyone in front of me. So I always, before I even went to trial, I kind of thought I didn't do it. But everyone thinks that. No one wants to believe that they did something when you're going to trial. Oh, I'm innocent. or oh, I shouldn't be here. So I kind of, as I grew up, I kind of whisked it off as, you know, I was just trying to get away from the responsibility, you know, but I have to grow up. I'm here. I did a crime. So those are the things that I would say to myself in my head. So after some years, I kind of talked myself into, yo, you did it. Did you pull the trigger? I say, yes. Was you in there? Yes. So you did it. You know what I mean? And do you believe that you know, the prosecution could lie? Yeah. Do you believe that they wanted to incarcerate somebody? Yes. Do you believe that possible you didn't do it? Yes, I believe it's possible. But do you believe that you have the power to do anything about it? No. So you've, you've long had doubt, and the thing that's changed is you feel like you might be empowered to look into that question in a way that you weren't before. Yes. Are you pursuing that, that question? I plan to. I plan to. I'm pursuing it slowly but surely. You know, it costs money to pursue that. So it's, it's, it's easy to get in trouble, but it's very hard to get a wrong right it. So I, I've done the time already. It's easy for someone to say, oh, move on. You did the time. You can't go back in time. But, but I don't want to have it on my shoulders that I killed someone. I just want to know that I didn't. You know what I mean, if I did then, you know, I had to carry this burden further. And hopefully uh, the whole family would would know that, you know, maybe it wasn't me. But then again, that would leave the question up in the air for them. So I guess thinking it's me in some ways, I, don't, I can't say it's better for them because they lost, you know, a brother and a son. And so... It's, it's just no good answers in this situation. But speaking from me being here today, I don't want it to be me. I really, really don't want it to be me. That's Lawrence Bartley and his wife, Renine Bartley. After her medical leave, Renine is back at work in a New York City school this fall. 
Lawrence is working his two jobs and doing some personal training on the side to get more money saved and to pay for legal advice. There are links to my previous interviews with Lawrence and Renin and to the essay Lawrence wrote about preparing for parole on our website at deathsexmoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can email us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. After finding a therapist last fall, Renine's been going weekly, and she says it's helped a lot. I love my therapist. I miss her since I've gone back to work. I need therapy. I have to be in therapy for the rest of my life, I think. (laughs) I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.